Why do they recline? I happen to be walking by the TV today when Good Morning America was on. That's the only time I see it is when I see it by accident. But I did happen to see that they had set up some airline seats this morning in the studio. And Robin Roberts was sitting behind another person on the show. And they were discussing airplane seat etiquette. And it was one more reason for me to be glad that I haven't flown anywhere in about 12 years. Uh, the stupid procedures that you have to go through now at the airport got me a long time ago to not want to fly anywhere. And I really haven't paid for a flight to go anyway for a long, long time. Uh, and a while ago, people stopped paying me to fly places. So there you have it. And the videos I've seen on social media over the past few years have convinced me to stay away from airports and convinced me that I'm doing the right thing. The latest stupidity that's shown up on Twitter is people getting into fights over someone reclining a seat. Apparently, somewhere along the line, it became unacceptable to lean your seat back if there's someone sitting behind you, and it's become a thing, which I don't understand, but it's gotten to the point where there's so much discussion about it that, as I said, Good Morning America devoted a segment to it this morning. So I have a simple question. If you're not supposed to recline your seat, why does it recline? It seems pretty simple. It's not something I'm going to have to worry about because, as I said, I don't plan to fly anywhere anytime soon. But according to a story at PJ Media, the great reclining seat debate is not a reason for not flying for most people. You know, but surviving the flight might be an issue. According to this story, a team of aviation analysts released a study yesterday that says the FAA has 11,000 fewer air traffic controllers compared to 11 years ago. That should make you feel good. And it means that more controllers are working overtime, of course, and that, of course, means more fatigue and less productivity. And according to the study, there's been a great increase in the number of serious close calls between planes lately, and safety is, quote, eroding, unquote, and will get worse if nothing's done. But, hey, let's get that reclining seat debate settled. When we come back, we're going to talk to a woman who did prison time for helping abortion doctor and serial, serial killer uh, Kermit Gosnell do his work. Gosnell is now serving three life sentences. And in our second half hour, an expert on big tech will be here to talk about the latest reason to keep your kids off TikTok. This time it's a letter from Osama bin Laden that's gone viral. Stick around. The following segment is for mature audiences only. Dr. Kermit Gosnell is in prison right now. He'll spend the rest of his life there for killing three babies. He was convicted of that, uh, three babies who survived an abortion. A movie was made about him and his story, and the media did a really good job of suppressing it, but it did get out there. Adrian Moten worked for Dr. Gosnell, and she ended up going to prison too, and she joins us now. Adrian, thanks for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. So why were you sentenced to prison? Well, I was sentenced to prison be- because of the part that I played. No, what were you... My what? hands, my Go ahead. So, I, I helped, you know, with the procedures. I was in the room with Gosnell. I yeah. played a role in that massacre. Okay, and um, how old were you when you went to work for him? Well, I was... Oh, I'm 46 now, so I don't know. It's going to take me a while to think about it. <laughs> <that. laughs> 
But I will say when I met them, I was actually 17 Mm -hmm. when I met them. And that was in 1995. So I want to say I was 26, 27 when I started working for them. Okay. And what were you told your job would be when you were hired? And and what did you think you were going to be doing? And did you end up doing what you knew you would be doing and then didn't find out until later that you didn't want to be doing it? Well, the funny thing is I was actually, I was there to volunteer because of another worker uh, they was having problems with. Mm-hmm. So I started volunteering and next thing I know, I'm there. It happened so fast. Mm-hmm. I just was caught up, got caught up. And you say you took part. I don't want to get want it to be too gruesome and I, I'm sure mm-hmm. it's tough for you to talk about it, but... When you say you took part in what was going on, what was what exactly were you doing on a day-to-day basis? Well, I did ultrasound. I uh, got the uh, ultrasound when he uh, did the abortion. Um, I also did the tools. I um, it is it is gruesome to talk about and it's hard. Yeah, but I I I played a big role in working at that clinic along with everyone else. And so, uh, how how long did it take you before you started realizing? I, I guess it's just hard to imagine working there, and um, and I'm guessing that you have to almost put out of your mind what you're doing in order to keep doing it. Or 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 did you not? Did you had you been convinced that it really wasn't killing a baby, and it was something? You know, it was a it was a procedure that was helping a woman out. How did you look exactly. at it? That's how I looked at it, um, supporting the women because I've been in their shoes. I understand how it feels. So that was my initial thought and feeling, and I really thought I was doing something great. And, you know, um, looking back, evil just took over so fast, you know. Mm-hmm. I became so numb. I became so cold. I no longer cared about the uh the cries of the ladies, the women, you know, I was just there to do a job. Okay, let's get them on the table and get this done and over with. That's how I became. And um, my turning point was when he, he did a, um, there was a 30 weeker. Wow. And um, yeah, that was, and that's very, very traumatic for me. And it's very hard to talk about. But this is the 30-weeker that I honor. I named him. His, I named him Jacob. And um, that's when everything hit. And I said, I, I had to get out of there. And so, that's when I realized, you know, how I was acting. You know, I, I lost myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a 30-weeker, that's that's a baby. That's not a... That's, that's a that, grown that, baby. Yeah. And so... Um, what uh, he was, he was convicted for, uh, for the killing of three babies, but he killed a lot more than that, didn't he? Way more. Yes. When I say killed, I mean, some people will say every, every abortion, he killed a baby, but I'm talking about the babies that he killed outside the womb. Yes. You, you witnessed that. Yes, I have. Yes. And how, how would he do that? He would take a pair of scissors, a regular pair of scissors, and he would snip the back of their necks. 
And and he would when he did this, was it just a matter of factly? And it is just this is part of the deal. It's like this is the, this is the service the woman came in for, and I'm just performing the service. Did did he have any doubts about what he was doing? No, he was he was Doctor God's known. He was there to do a service. That's what that's that was his attitude. And no remorse. It was just a job to him. And when you uh, first witnessed this. How did you tell yourself you could be okay? I'm not necessarily the the thirty week, uh, thirty weaker as you called them. Um, the uh, the the fetuses that were not as f- uh, far along that they're easier to accept, I'm guessing. But you still you're seeing arms and legs and you're seeing babies, aren't you? Yes, yes, I have. And um, again, it just it didn't affect me at first. It just didn't. And after a while, it really, I just became, I was so numb, so numb to it. And and how many uh, women like you were working there who were in your similar situation and I'm guessing went numb themselves the same way you did? Well, the majority of them worked in the front. I worked behind the scenes in the back. So as far as in the back, I would say it was two or three of us. Mm-hmm. It's been so long ago, so please forgive me if yeah. I don't know the accurate yeah. number. But but you, about two or three of us. And you were, when you say working in the back, you were, the people in the front were dealing with um, patients when they came oh. in, and you were, you were back there actually where the abortions were taking place. Yes, yes. And what would a normal day look like? How many abortions would you uh, participate in in a day? Would there be many? Well, it all depends. Um, they were normally performed on Mondays, Monday nights, Tuesday nights, Thursday nights, and Saturday, all day Saturday, up until 2 o'clock in the morning. So Saturday, of course, was the heaviest day. So we're talking about it could be 20 to 25 procedures. In one day? In one day, yes. And how long would, how long would a procedure take? If you, uh, if you can get 20 of them in, in a day, how long, is, how long is it to take to do it? Well, for a first trimester, it takes literally about 6 to 10 minutes, I want to say. And um, he always did those. Did, he did the five, first trimesters first to get them out the way and as he's performing the first trimesters, the women that are in their second second trimester stage, he they will already be medicated, they would be sleeping, and he would administer a pill called it's either called Cytotec or Misoprystal. Mm-hmm. I'm probably saying it wrong. But it thins the cervix. So by the time he's done with the first trimesters and then he starts with the second trimesters, they're already ready to, you know, they're ready for him. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. That's why it, 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 was, it was nothing to have that many procedures in one day for him. And do you have any idea how much he would be paid for something like that? Well, I never, um, I never dealt with the financial part. 
But I'm sure there was a lot of money involved because he also did procedures in Delaware, and sometimes he would have patients from Delaware come over to Philadelphia. And um, most cases I know was about two, three grand, I must say. So he's making a lot of money on a Saturday. Yes, yes. And you also got to think about the days that the office was closed, which was Sundays. Mm -hmm. And um, he always left evidence that he did a procedure because I was the one that would come in Monday and clean the tools. So that set in the sink overnight. Dry blood, everything is set overnight. So I can't even tell you how many uh, procedures he's done on Sundays. And um, when did... um when did law enforcement become interested in what was going on there? Well, from my knowledge, he's he was watched for a long time because of the narcotic prescriptions, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I left in October 2008. It was just too much for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, a woman died on his table in 2009, and then 2010, that's when they raided his office, and that's when everything went downhill from there. What did they find in his office? I think if I remember from talking to the producers of the movie, um, they found uh, um, aborted babies in in um, refrigerators, coolers, or something, like, or, or baby parts. It was there were uh, parts in a freezer. Um, they had they found jars of baby seat and he said that was for basically uh, uh, because we had a lot of young women come in mm-hmm. that were underage so if the mother of that young woman young lady wanted to press charges against the father who was grown mm-hmm. they would use the seat for uh, rape kid purposes rape kid purposes excuse me but they were never used. Mm-hmm. And, they were uh, never used. When these women would come, we're talking to, by the way, Adrian Moten. She worked for Dr. Kermit Gosnell, who killed lots and lots of babies as an abortion doctor and is now serving three life sentences. Um, uh, these The women that came in, you say a lot of them were underage, so they were girls, some of them. Many yeah, of them. Yeah, we had, we had a. Plenty of girls, plenty of girls, and we had a lot of, you know, a lot of women, yeah. But lots of girls, and were questions asked of them of how they got pregnant, if they were raped? Uh, the, the, where did these where did these girls come from, and what were their stories that they would tell, and why they wanted to get an abortion, and did it matter to anybody? Well, questions were never asked. Questions were never asked, and again, I worked in the back. Mm-hmm. So, the women up, that worked up front, I don't know what was said. So I, I can't really speak on that. But from when they came back to us in the back, questions we never asked questions. Well, you figured the questions were already asked. They were already back to have an abortion, so it didn't matter at that right. point, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, did you find out things in the course of the investigation and the trial that you, that you weren't aware of? I found out a lot of things. Um, 
Abby Johnson, um, who I love, <laughs> mm-hmm. she told me about the, they call it the Mother's Day Massacre. Mm-hmm. That was shocking. I never heard of that. Um, I was also told at the time. Well, what, the was, what, was the mother's, the, what was the Mother's Day Massacre? So it was something about a, a, a ball with razors in it. And please excuse me if I'm saying this wrong. But it was a ball with razors mm-hmm. and wrapped in some type of goo. And you put the ball in the woman's cervix and her body heat would melt the ball and the razors would spread out to kill the baby. This is what this guy was doing. Yes. And that was, I, I, I want to say back in the 70s mm-hmm. that that happened. So, I, you know, that was my first time hearing about that. Um, according to the grand jury report, yeah, guys, no, he was, he was involved in, in a lot of, a lot of things that I was told. I never mm-hmm. got the chance to read to the mm-hmm. grand jury report. So it's just, it's so much. So well, much. well, I'm running out of time. I want to make sure I give you a chance to tell me what, uh, what is, uh, then there were none, and we've had Abby Johnson on the show. So just explain how you got involved with then there were none and what you're doing now. Well, and then there were none. They, they're a ministry that helps women leave the abortion clinic they provide uh, resources, uh, healing resources. They provide uh, financial help, you know, for us to get back on our feet, you know, as far as getting mm-hmm. a job and everything. It is Christ-centered, which is amazing. And it, it's kind of a long story how I got connected, but let's just say it was God-ordained. Mm-hmm. I will say that. Because she sent letters when we were in prison. I never received the letters. I got a number from another organization and I called them to for help, and they gave me Abby's number, and we've been sisters ever since. Yeah, and I know she's had a lot of success in in getting women out of the organization. And before you go, yes. what what is fashionably forgiven jewelry? Oh my goodness! So that's um, a company that I've cranked, that I came up with because at one point my hands were doing evil and dirty things, mm-hmm. and I thank God that He turned turned it around for my hands to do beautiful, to make beautiful things now. So you make jewelry? Yes. How can people yes. How can people buy it? Well, at the time, it's on hold because I'm in school. Okay. But once I get things off the ground with that, I would definitely put that out there. I, I do have a Facebook, you know, Adrian Moten, and yeah. Okay. It's taking time, but it's going to happen. <laughs> well, good luck with that. I'm glad you turned your life around. I'm glad you shared your experience uh, with us, and I hope it uh, helps people who might be thinking about abortion or, even worse, going to work for somebody who performs them. I, I appreciate yeah. you coming on, Adrian. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, that's Adrian Moten, and she uh, worked for Dr. Guznell, one of the worst murderers in American history. I'll be right back. Well, it would be hard to find any adult with a brain who doesn't believe social media has been terrible for kids. The latest example is uh, what's been going viral on TikTok the last few days. Some popular influencers discovered a letter that Osama bin Laden wrote shortly after September 11, 2001. 
uh, in which he tried to justify killing 3,000 people. And apparently young people are turning up on TikTok saying it has changed their lives and encouraging other kids to check it out. Uh, not just kids either. Um, but anyway, Jake Denton is a research associate at the Heritage Foundation Tech Policy Center, and he joins us now. Jake, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So you've referred to TikTok as digital fentanyl. Um, I'm guessing this is what you're talking about here. Well, you know, TikTok's a unique issue, and uh, that phrase kind of applies to it in more ways than one. But uh, when it comes to the harmful content, whether it be the challenges that encourage bodily harm to these children or to these kind of crazy ideas that get propagated throughout the app, it is pretty clear that uh, this app is toxic in a way that fentanyl is uh, as a substance. What do you make of what's going on here with the Osama bin Laden letter? Well, you know, it's very interesting. These things happen constantly on the app, and some get news attention, others don't. I think the best example is the work that Libs of TikTok does, the very popular social media profile, shows how easy gender dysphoria content gets propagated across the app. And, you know, the mainstream media never really picks up on it. But when an instance like this occurs where it's particularly jarring, you have a bunch of kids sympathizing with Osama bin Laden. These are American kids raised in our schools that view 9-11 as something that was justified merely because they saw a video on TikTok about, you know, one of their peers reading a, a letter that he wrote, uh, it starts to become very real very quickly. Um, and what's kind of losing uh, coverage in the story, you know, everyone's focused on how it is that these kids have these ideas and they're sharing them on the app is how this translates into the real world. You know, this doesn't stay confined to the app. They take, they take this to the schools and for the older crowd, they take it to the streets when they're demonstrating uh, and these allegiances that they're developing to these crazy ideas will manifest in the physical world in ways that we're not really uh, prepared for. Yeah, there's uh, st- stories all over the Internet about, internet about it today. Uh, there's one video, uh, a um, uh, uh, someone on TikTok said that, quote, everything we learned about the Middle East, 9-11, and terrorism was a lie. They're saying that based on, well, they're taking Osama bin Laden's word for it. But they're taking his word for it because they see it on TikTok, right? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's very interesting, the dynamics of these apps, right? I think uh, what's lost on a lot of parents when their kids go on is they think that they're going to see some ordinary person making this video and assume that they're going to view them as an ordinary person. But the way that the app conveys this information to you is done where everyone kind of seems like they're coming from a position of authority, uh, whether it be the flashy backdrop that you record in or a very polished presenter, the child who's taking this in, or in many cases, even adults, falsely places confidence in the message. And they easily believe it in a way that I think a lot of people it's lost on. You know, it's you can say the craziest thing on this app and, you know, you can tell kids all the time, don't believe everything you read online. But uh, it's very convincing when it's accompanied by a video and, a you know, a pretty face that's telling you this story suddenly that message carries a lot of weight with it. It's been taken down, apparently, but uh, according to a story on CNN, um, Letter to America, uh, a video with the hashtag Letter to America, had over 14 million views today. So 14 million people have at least stopped by to check out a nice letter from Osama bin Laden justifying 9-11 and how many millions of those people will now walk away with the opinion I just mentioned there that everything we've heard about the Middle East and 9-11 was a lie? 
Yeah, and it's important to consider the broader context when it comes to that type of reporting where they say, you know, 14 million people viewed this. Uh, it's important to realize that when there are moments of kind of skepticism over whether going to allow for these videos to stay up, the platform innovates in a way to avoid detection. And so, you know, instead of saying letter to America in the caption or mentioning it by name in the video, they'll, you know, switch one of the words out to avoid the automated detection. And so for every video that's being cataloged under letter to America that's attributing to that metric, there's dozens that go undetected. And that number is actually, in all reality, probably much larger than 14 million. Um, and it's not only being given to American audiences. This is going around the world. Uh, and, you know, for the American audiences having this video taken down, maybe it stays up abroad. Um, and maybe that sentiment grows in an area that already is, uh, you know, opposed to America or sympathetic towards terrorism. And we have a whole other issue on our hands of, you know, an, a new region maybe emerging as a terror threat. Um, you know, this isn't confined necessarily to our borders. Mm -hmm. Is TikTok now by far the most popular and most visited app or platform on social media? Yeah, it's really running away with the race. Uh, you know, you look at apps like Instagram and Facebook, and it's very clear that TikTok is eating away at their screen time and suddenly emerging as not only the premier social media platform, but premier source of news and as a search browser even uh, for this younger generation. And so, you know, maybe you were inclined to go to Instagram for social media and then Google for searching. Everything now is going through this one centralized application um, and they're expanding. They're adding, you know, music functionality where it could rival your music streaming platform of choice. And in some countries, they're even experimenting with a AI bot similar to ChatGPT. And so this app is growing in size and it's growing in applications. It's not merely a, a TikTok dance video type platform anymore. It is a TikTok uh, work tool. It's a TikTok browsing tool. So uh, the problem's growing. Uh, we've just barely seen the tip of the iceberg with this. And, and how did it become so popular? Facebook was the thing for a while, and then Snapchat seemed to knock that out. And now here we have TikTok. Is there something waiting in the wings that could knock TikTok out that might not be as harmful as TikTok? Or, well, I guess I'm asking, could it get any worse, you know? <laughs> well, it can certainly get worse, and I think it will. But uh, when it comes to TikTok and how it gained popularity, it was really the perfect storm. Uh, Short-form video was something that was gaining popularity. TikTok was able to come into the market with uh, influencers that they inherited from their purchase of Physically, which is a, a rival app. I mean, they ported over these audiences and these users, pivoted the business model a little bit, and they were in just a perfect position to capitalize on that demand for short-form content. Now, when you look at the, you know, the sidelines of who could potentially emerge as a challenger, you know, Instagram has tried and failed to rival TikTok. You look at uh, YouTube, their short form video program has been a disaster. It has barely even touched the usership of TikTok. And so even the incumbents, the, the big platforms themselves can't challenge what TikTok has created. So the only way this is going away is with a full full stop ban. Uh, we're talking to Jake Denton. He's a research associate at the Heritage Foundation Tech Policy Center. Yeah, you, you said the only solution is a ban, but what's the chances of that? What are the chances of that happening? And where are the defenders of TikTok and how are they defending it? Yeah, well, the chances uh, have been opaque from the beginning, right? President Trump tried to execute this in the latter days of his administration, and it ultimately fell apart in large part due to some legal challenges prompted by TikTok. 
But, you know, as it stands today, there are countless pieces of legislation that have been introduced that are sitting on the sidelines waiting for a vote on the floor. We aren't voting on this TikTok legislation. It's not like we're waiting for, you know, someone to draft it. It's all been written. Uh, everyone understands now that this is a massive issue and leadership just needs to prompt a vote. I think when you look at where America stands as a whole, it's very clear that the people want this thing gone. Uh, I think, you know, for more reasons than what people are, are eager for this to go away. Um, and so it's time for our leaders to step up to the plate and actually deliver for the American people the ban that we've been waiting for. Is it not a conservative liberal thing necessarily? Uh, no, I think it's uniquely bipartisan. Uh, and I think the reason for that being is there's a million different reasons to be concerned for this. Uh, there's the data privacy concerns, the fact that they're surveilling millions and millions of Americans, ranging from uh, people of consequence, like a politician, all the way down to our children. Uh, they're propping up, you know, all sorts of divisive content. Uh, they're pushing everything from, you know, gender dysphoria all the way to extremes like terrorist content, you know, things that are inspiring real-world violence. Uh, they're pushing content that's encouraging kids to commit suicide. There's no party division on this. It's universally evil. I think just about anyone who would be forced to take a vote on this would feel very uncomfortable siding with the Chinese Communist Party tech platform over their own constituents. Would it make any difference to people if it was, say, Canada that was you know, responsible for TikTok instead of China? Uh, well, you know, maybe this all unfolded a little differently if it came from a different country. You know, maybe they were more willing to come in with a, a heavier fist and make sure that these kinks are worked out. Uh, you know, if it came from another country, it probably wouldn't have had those types of data privacy concerns or as many. But the fact that it's, uh, you know, coming from China is merely a multiplying factor, right? It shows that this is never going to be resolved because it was designed to do this, right? This isn't some accident. There's a reason that there are so many terrible parts of this app, whether it be the data privacy or the algorithm that promotes this content. It was done by design, and it's why it was the perfect storm, that it took over our country in mass and that it's impossible to decouple from. You see all these kids increasing their screen time after all these revelations, not decreasing. Um, and so really the only way to do this is to drop the hammer and ban it because it is just going to continue to consume our country bit by bit until there's nothing left. How do you ban it? I mean, I, 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 well, I mean by two way, two things. I, I guess you could pass a law, but I'm talking about uh, the technological way to ban it. What do you do? How do you keep it yeah, from so, going up there on the Internet? Yeah, uh, really, this all boils down to the app stores, right? I think that is where this uh, lives and dies, whether this ban is actually enforceable and, and, you know, it actually works. It hinges on Apple's App Store and Google's Play Store. Those are where people are going for this application. Uh, so the minute you, you know, take that off of the App Store, the user base drops like a rock. And there will be certainly people who try and get around that, whether it be, you know, finding a, a link online to download a, you know, illegal version of this. You're never going to necessarily get rid of everything. And that's kind of accepted. But for the vast majority of the people, the 99% average person, once it is banned from the app stores and you can't get it in an easy fashion on your mobile device, they're going to stop using it. And so that's the first step. And then you start kind of working for the more fringe cases, the um, there's another element of this, which goes unreported constantly, which is that uh, they actually have software development kits, which are little pieces of code that are embedded on websites all around the web that are collecting data just like the app does. 
once you get it away from the app stores, you go to those fringe elements as well and you start chasing those down. Uh, this won't be an overnight thing. It's not as easy as a flip of a switch. It's going to be a, a prolonged battle to make sure this doesn't reemerge. But um, someone has to take a shot at it. You know, we haven't even tried. Uh, since President Trump tried to get rid of this, no one has even made an effort. Uh, what was the what was the I'm trying to think back to what the um, where the pushback came from for when Trump wanted to end it. Who who said that was a bad idea? Yeah, so this was a legal battle prompted by ByteDance, TikTok's parent company, and it hinged primarily around freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the ban was not being done at the time because of the harmful content. We're seeing a lot of calls for that today. But if you take a step back, the reason that President Trump advanced this executive order in the later days of his administration was there was a great deal of concern over Chinese web services, tech companies as a whole, and the ways that they're collecting data on Americans. If you recall, it was not actually just TikTok at the beginning. It included companies like Tencent and Alibaba's cloud services. It was kind of a, a whole of internet approach. Uh, and then it kind of dwindled away to just TikTok and we couldn't even get that. But now with this, you know, almost two more years of knowledge and horror stories that we've seen unfold in real time, there's all sorts of firepower that just weren't on the sidelines at the time. You know, it's very clear today that this is not a freedom of speech issue. This is a national security issue. And um, I saw a segment on ABC News about a woman who uh, credits TikTok with saving her life because she had a terminal illness but was able to survive because she got a kidney uh, transplant. And the person who donated the kidney saw that she had the issue on TikTok. So China has a, a pretty good idea of how to, I don't know, sell TikTok as a wonderful thing. Because it pops and there's ABC oh, I mean, promoting it. Yeah, I give them credit. They have a great PR team. You know, you watch Sunday Night Football and you'll see an ad with a veteran talking about how it helps them with their day to day life, whether it be uh, connecting to a veteran community or you maybe see a disabled ad or a small business. And it just tells you these marvelous stories of how TikTok has improved their life. But when it boils down to it, you're being manipulated. This is PR, this is propaganda, just like anything. Uh, the same way that, you know, the big tobacco would push these types of things or, you know, uh, oil spill is doing a, a PR push. It, the oil is still spilled from the ocean, right? TikTok is still poisoning the mines. And maybe it got this woman a kidney, uh, but that's one user of, you know, 100 million plus in the United States that has a, a positive real world story. Um, and let's be real. This is the Internet. This could have been accomplished through Facebook or Instagram or Craigslist posting. Uh, it didn't have to be TikTok. And, uh, you know, if it went away, maybe she uh, finds someone through that means or maybe another means. Tough to say. But I think it's important that if it's being, you know, propped up by TikTok as this uh, one-off feel-good story, you should know that there's an ulterior motive here. They're trying to avoid that ban uh, that we so desperately need. Finishing up here with Jake Denton. He's a research associate at the Heritage Foundation Tech Policy Center. Uh, last thing, Jake, you didn't you don't sound very optimistic about anything happening with this anytime soon. What what's it going to take to get people's attention? Well, I think this fire is growing and there's really no telling how this ends. Um, you know, the bin Laden letter is kind of this uh, news item of the week. It's the one that we're all paying attention to. But just by the very nature of this platform, there are nine other things that go unnoticed. Right. There's, uh, you know, a a story that emerges where a a kid commits suicide due to a challenge. It doesn't get national news coverage. 
it's really just tough to say what the domino is that prompts real action. Uh, you would have thought that the you know verified factual evidence that they are collecting troves and troves of data in very uh, you know illicit means, you know, backend surveillance, tracking your keystrokes, your passwords from your clipboard. You would have thought that did it. But maybe it takes something like this where it hits closer to home, where it's a real world thing. It's, you know, these politicians recall when they were in office and 9-11 happened. And now you see a generation of Americans who would have supported it if it happened today, that they're getting trained on TikTok. Uh, maybe it's these, the story that you never expected that gets us across the finish line. But um, you know, frankly, it doesn't matter at this stage of the game what gets it done. It just needs to happen. Um, so you, you just got to hope that these politicians can, uh, you know, cut through the noise and understand that this is uh, only going to get worse and it will spill over to the physical world. Hey, Jake, I appreciate you coming on uh, and I uh, hope to have you on again. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. OK, that's Jake Denton of the Heritage Foundation. I'll be right back. Well, I've been saying for a while, and you just uh, heard our segment there on uh, TikTok, that um, I think when people look back on this, uh, I don't know if we, if we still have a civilization 100 years from now, if they look back on this, they're going to realize that billions of people on the planet being equipped with their own personal video camera and then the ability to take the picture, to use the pictures that they take with it and put them up on uh, a platform that allows millions of people to see it will go down as one of, if not the worst thing ever to happen to the human race. Uh, you see the stuff that pops up on, mostly on TikTok now, but on uh, videos online everywhere. And we've talked about it here. There'll be a fight. There'll be some kind of an incident. And you you know by looking at it that... The incident would never have happened if the people who were involved in it were not equipped with their own video camera, which they could uh, from they could take the pictures from it and put it up and impress their friends with it. One of the worst examples was a month or so ago when the uh, the two kids decided to run over a guy riding his bike and laughing about it, and then they're they're so stupid and so. Uh, just so unaware of what death actually means and what what um, what their actions create that they kill a guy and then they make sure that they put the pictures they took of it up online. This is where the human race is right now. And as I'll say it again, the ability for every almost every person on the planet to have his own video camera is one of the worst things ever to happen to the human race. I'll be back tomorrow. Talk to you then.